0: Hey, friends, it's Paul Richman here, your trusty guide for all of those adventures in ed funding that we went on last year. I hope you've all been staying safe and well. I wanted to let you know about a brand new podcast that I'm really excited about. It's called Budgeting for Educational Equity. It's a collaboration between CASBO, the California Association of School Business Officials, and WestEd, a national research and service organization. Jason Willis from WestEd is the host of this new series, and Jason and I co-wrote and produced it. Our goal with this new series is to help raise understanding about the concept of resource equity in education. What does it mean? Why is it important? What are key examples of it in practice? This series provides some very hands-on, tangible guidance for education leaders, school business officials, educators, and school communities. Since you've been a dedicated follower of the Adventures in End Funding podcast, I wanted to provide you with a special listen to the first episode of this new series. It's sort of an introduction to the topic and it features some great guests you may recognize. In future episodes, we'll have even more education leaders, practitioners, and experts talking about their experiences and inspiring you with new ideas. Plus, we have more great music from our friend Tommy Dunbar. So again, this new series is called Budgeting for Educational Equity, and you can subscribe to it wherever you find your favorite podcasts. As Jason says at the start of this first episode, you've probably heard a lot about equity, but we don't think you've heard as much yet about practical strategies and examples that help school systems think about and do the work of more equitably allocating resources to meet the needs of all students. So with that, I'm gonna sign off and let you give this first episode a listen. Take care, and if you like what you hear, Please don't forget to subscribe to our new series.
1: Equity refers to subgroup disparities.
2: Well, we know that there are great disparities, that we have a lot of needs. We to have- make
1: sure that all of our students have uh, everything that
2: they need. What we call whole child equity. These are hard problems because equity is a hard
3: issue.
4: And so, how do you come up with a way to allocate funds equitably? Leaning in, that's how we get to equity.
5: You've probably heard a lot about educational equity. Maybe you live or work in a community where the public schools help many students achieve great things, and that should be celebrated. But you also know there's a pervasive, urgent challenge. It might only be a handful of students in a single class or a group of kids at a particular school. Maybe it's the majority of students at a school or within a district. But the data tells us undeniably, our current public education system is not working for all students. Here's the thing though, it doesn't have to stay like that. How can dedicated teams of leaders school business officials, educators, and entire school communities allocate resources. Resources like time, money, and our most valuable asset, people, to better meet the needs of all of their students. And that's the story I'm here to share. It's a story we're calling Budgeting for Educational Equity. My name is Jason Willis, and I'm so glad you're here with me. When it comes to equity, it's not always easy to locate yourself on the map. Equity is multidimensional, many concepts connect in and out with it, and things can get confusing, especially the more you keep pressing your way forward into the noisy, bustling, sometimes uncomfortable intersection where equity meets educational resources. So I thought the ideal place to start would be to ask several really smart, thoughtful people how they think about and define equity in education, just to give us our bearings. The very first call I made was to Chris Hedley. Chris is a former law professor at UC Berkeley and at Harvard, soon to be dean of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Education. He also co-founded the Opportunity Institute. When California conducted a sweeping round of policy and budget research a few years back, Chris was the go-to person for analysis of the state's work around equity.
1: I've actually... uh thought about this quite a lot in the last couple of years, because I chaired a committee of the National Academy of Sciences that has, has produced recommendations on how to create a national system of educational equity indicators. And the notion that we adopted was that equity refers to subgroup disparities in both outcomes, on the one hand, and opportunities or inputs on the other. You have to look at both sides of the equation. It's a question of measuring the right things, looking at the subgroup differences and asking the question of what's driving those differences and how can we do better? Mm. So that's the the way I think of it. Perhaps informed by uh, being a lawyer, being a law professor and thinking about the way discrimination uh, the laws and, and regulations are framed. But equity is not really about discrimination. I think it's about patterns at the population level, at the subgroup level. And it doesn't require identifying somebody uh, who is the villain in creating inequity. It simply requires identifying the disparities that we believe are unacceptable and deciding that something must be done.
5: Yeah, I think that's such a substantial differential you're pointing out there, Chris, especially the way you shifted the responsibility from a single individual to the collective. And say more about how this plays out in our schools.
1: Well, it's actually kind of simple. Uh, it's, it's a notion that each and every child deserves the opportunities they need in order to succeed, to fulfill their potential. Um, I think in particular, it looks to the responsibility of the adults in the system, whether it's uh, state legislators uh, or uh, budget makers or superintendents or principals. Uh, That's really the ultimate question, is whether the opportunities and the attendant supports and interventions are given to the people, the kids who need them. Um, and uh, that we hold ourselves accountable if we don't provide those opportunities.
4: So I'll tell you what I 100% agree with, 1,000% agree with, is that we hold ourselves accountable if we don't provide those opportunities. Every adult in the system should feel the urgency. Hmm. 100%, 1,000% agree with that.
5: That's Janie Christakos, she's a veteran school business leader who's served in several school districts over the years, most recently as the chief business official in San Bernardino City Unified, a district of nearly 50,000 students. Where applying equity practices in school budgeting becomes more complex, Janie says, is as schools and communities grapple with identifying expenditures and supports specifically for various groups of students. Especially when extra funding from the state and federal government is generated by those student populations.
4: The ultimate question is whether the opportunities and the attendant support and interventions are given to the kids who need them. I think that's where people have differing opinions. Mm -hmm. I've heard from very um, compliance based that it's just Jason and nobody else should get whatever this is right, and. I would say that if all kids can benefit from an improvement in the system, then why not, right? If Jason and Paul and Janie can all benefit from professional development that improves that first instruction, then let's do it. Now, if Janie needs extra support, and you know, if we can layer that support and it's very specific need, that a student needs so that they can be successful. Certainly you want that directed to the students that are generating those funds. So it's complicated. And
5: What I think is so powerful about what Janie is saying here is that she's really pointing out the complex dimensions of the system. That this notion of resource equity is not straightforward, not single-sided. That one way to think about achieving equity is really about investing resources to ensure First, all boats rise, and that this first happens through high quality instruction in every single classroom. But what she's also saying is that some of those resources do need to be directed towards students that need them and need to be able to have access to those opportunities as a result. And this isn't a new concept that's coming to the education sector. Here's Mike Kirst, a former State Board of Education president. Stanford Education Professor Emeritus, and a key figure in shaping state and federal policies for more than seven decades now.
4: When we originally did standards uh, in the 80s and 90s, we talked about uh, curricular standards and assessment standards. And then we had a term, which you've heard, called opportunity to learn. And that really measured whether the teachers were teaching what was intended in the high standards in the classroom, whether there were the materials to teach it, whether there were trained teachers, whether uh, the coverage was there, uh, whether they were teaching problem solving and not just memorization. So uh, I think that the uh, equity to me really is, uh, like everything else, it happens in classrooms, through instruction, Mm. Uh, but that to me is really what it's all about.
5: Equity and what it's about. That's what we're exploring in this first episode of our new series, and I'll be back with even more thoughts and definitions from our guests to help you get your resource equity bearings in just one
3: minute. Hi, I'm Tasha Davenport, CEO and Executive Director of CASBO the California Association of School Business Officials. CASBO is the premier resource for professional development and best practices for California's tens of thousands of school business leaders. We're excited to present this series to you in partnership with WestEd, a national nonprofit research development and service agency that works to promote excellence and equity in education. Our goal with this series is to raise understanding about resource equity and to help you think about and apply tangible strategies to achieve success for all students. And now it's my pleasure to turn it back to our series host, Jason Willis, former Chief Business Official in several California districts and currently the Director of Strategic Resource Planning and Performance for WestEd.
5: Thanks Tasha. Yet another important dimension to the educational equity conversation has to do with removing barriers, barriers that are both visible and invisible to the adults in the system.
4: I always will use, I still use year to year the graphic, you know, to describe equity, mm. but then also that one that removes the barrier. So,
5: That's Adela Madrigal-Jones, superintendent in Sanger Unified School District.
4: Instead of having to get over the fence, I think everybody mostly have seen that graphic where they put the boxes And mm-hmm. but instead of just giving them resources to look over the fence, at the same time, we have to look at ways are we going to remove the fence? How do we remove the barriers for these kids? So um, that that equitable access is something that they automatically is just embedded into their day, into their experience here at the school.
5: As Chris Edley described, educational equity is about looking at where disparities exist among groups of students, including critically racial gaps. These disparities in education have traditionally been measured by state assessments in English language arts and math. But says Marguerite Williams, we also need to look through a wider lens.
2: I think sometimes we feel that educators think that equity is only about race, but Equity is more than just race. Race plays a huge part in the inequities that we see in our society and in our educational system today. But there are other areas that um, deal with uh, the poverty level of our students. Because you'll go to a district and you don't see any...
5: Marguerite currently serves as assistant superintendent for academic services with Adelanto School District. She also served as a site leader in Los Angeles Unified and as senior director of equity and diversity with AXA, the statewide school administrators association. You know,
2: and even going into my role uh, for AXA, I was like, okay, I'm focusing on the race uh, as definitely being an inequity, but th- there's so much more. And I think as an educational community, we have to look at all the areas where our students may be coming to our classroom with not everything that they need.
5: Looking at all of a student's needs, both inside and outside of the classroom, is, as Marguerite emphasizes, another key dimension to resource equity. And it has never been more relevant than now, when we find ourselves coming out of a devastating pandemic that has pulled the curtain back on stark inequities among students.
2: Those of us in the education equity field understood there were inequities, but the rest of the country came to see because. There were reports and stories of who had access to broadband, who had to be at the parking lot of a Starbucks in order to do their schoolwork. So those images of who got to work at home, who had to risk their lives, what 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 students in high school suddenly weren't showing up because they had to take a, a job because their father had been fired? I mean. Yeah, the images are right now, right now.
5: That's Maria Echeveste. She serves as the president and CEO for the Opportunity Institute. She's also an attorney and formerly served in many pivotal public service positions, including as White House deputy chief of staff. Maria joined the conversation when I reached out to Chris.
1: Interesting. I think some of the detailed stories about the way inequity is evident in the pandemic, Um have educated a lot of people about some of the nuances of disadvantage in the country. And that's all to the good. But for many of us, is this is old news. And how many news stories, how many think tank reports do we have to have to keep repeating the fact that the have-nots are hurt the most? And the pattern of have-nots seems all but immutable in our American system. That's the tragedy. We don't see nearly as many news stories or think tank reports about what to do about it, uh, what changes we'll get at the root causes of, of inequity. And that, of course, also brings us back to the budgeting question. Are you spending resources on the right things that will make a difference in narrowing these disparities and breaking the vicious cycles that we see caused by, by poverty, by structural racism, uh, by uh, local property tax funding, all of the things that we know contribute to these patterns of, uh, of misfortune.
5: Yeah, I, I, Chris, I really appreciate the way that you, both you and Maria are navigating this tension between where is the solution set to ultimately advance systems that are not only distributing resources more equitably, but creating those opportunities, achieving those outcomes for those populations. And I mean, there's a lot in there, right? There's a lot of commentary in there. So I want to take us a little bit deeper. What do you see as some of the common resource equities showing up? at the school district level as you think about differences in resources that show up between schools? What what kind of comes to mind for you? Is it that just flatly all schools are under-resourced and that's the problem? Is it an issue of re-segregation in our schools? Is it an issue of having not enough resources going to students of most need? Is it all those, none of those?
2: Yeah, it's all of those, but I think I think that we need to be able to talk about education resources in recognizing the dotted lines with all those other things like housing segregation and economic inequity. And the Opportunity Institute, along with others, has spent the last few years working on what we call whole child equity, but it it is basically neuroscience tells us that the impact of adversity, poverty, and trauma affects children's ability to learn. It also tells us that the brain is malleable and with the right interventions, children can learn. And every child learns differently, right? So, So when we talk about resource equity, the pandemic particularly, gives me some hope that we are going to connect the mental health department and the social services bureaucracies to address the needs of children outside the classroom while still improving the teaching and learning, right? When you look at it that way, you start to see, yes, it starts with what the investments are directly for the school, but then it, it has to be more than just what that budget is. So it's a both and. It's like, look at what's being invested by the local, by the state, by the feds, but then look at what else is or isn't available for those students that allow them to be able to focus on their education
1: you know at one level the problem is that uh is here's a kid the kids facing lots of challenges Mm -hmm. uh, family community at school the broader society the images the signals um do we nurture that kid's dreams so they have them um do we discount that kid's dreams Or do we embrace them, support them, and hold ourselves accountable for creating possibilities? Um, We often have a a positive rhetorical response to those kinds of questions, but is it reflected in budgets? Is it reflected in programs? Is it reflected in outcomes? Hmm. Um, It's got to move from the realm of rhetoric into the, the realm of of implementation.
5: As you survey the the landscape in California, do do you have examples of communities that are on the road to putting some of these pieces in place where they are reframing or rethinking the way that they're thinking about supporting students from a resource perspective?
2: You, you, You raise something dear to my heart, which is the landscape, whether it's California or frankly across the country, is replete with examples of really good practices, really good policies, jewels of the schools, right? The challenge is how do you make that systemic? How do you take it to scale? So there's just, there's an urgency, you can hear it in my voice, right now mm-hmm. to take those examples to try to point to that and say this is what we should be doing here, especially right now when there's money coming from the states, from the feds, here's how you could spend your money differently and have a greater impact.
5: How we respond not just as individuals but as a community of professionals to address resource inequities and resolve those gaps that is the watershed moment we face how can we act with urgency but also take thoughtful steps to transform our systems that and more coming up when our series continues budgeting for educational equity is presented by casbo and wested this series is also made possible by the generous support of the Sobrato Family Foundation. We're grateful to all of the hardworking, dedicated education and policy leaders who graciously shared their time and expertise with us. And we'll be hearing more from many of them in the upcoming episodes. Our series is written and produced by Paul Richman and by me, Jason Willis. Sound, mixing, and original music are by Tommy Dunbar. John Diaz develops our related written materials. Be sure to check those out online and in our show notes. And please, if you find the podcast helpful, spread the word. We'll see you out there.